You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. The following is a recording of the Ayn Rand Institute's Philosophy for Living on Earth webinar series. Sign up to attend the next webinar live at bit.ly forward slash ARI webinars. Is There a God? By Aaron Smith. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Philosophy for Living on Earth, coming to you live from the Ayn Rand Institute. This is a weekly webinar series exploring life's big questions and the answers to those questions uh, coming from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Uh, my name is Aaron Smith. I'm your host this week. And our big question for the day is, is there a God? So I will present for about 15 to 20 minutes, and then we'll open it up for questions and discussion. My colleague Ben Bayer is here in the office with me. He'll be moderating the Q&A uh, and likely joining in the discussion as well. So is there a God? This is a question that people all over the world and in different eras have had to ask themselves and had to grapple with. Uh, at one time or other, or perhaps throughout their lives. And obviously people have arrived at different question, different answers to the questions. Some people think that a God or gods exist, others do not. Others think it's impossible to know one way or the other, and they believe or not as they choose. Now, I think that even if you've never personally grappled much with the question, so for example, if you were born in a completely non-religious home or environment and you never really took it seriously, or alternatively, if you were born in a, a religious environment and everyone around you believes and you never really took atheism seriously, but even if you've never really grappled hard with the question, I think it's important to know why or on what grounds um, you answer the question in the way that you do and whether those grounds are good ones. I mean, it's a, an important question. Now, this is just gonna be a short introduction to uh, a big topic and there's gonna be a, a million things one can ask and I'm gonna skip over a lot of things, right? So we're not gonna settle everything here, but what basically what I wanna do is get some of the key elements of Ayn Rand's perspective on the subject out on the table uh, for discussion. So it won't cover everything, but it'll get to some key points that'll um, I think spurn a discussion and which I think are helpful for thinking about the issue. So I'm going to spoil all the suspense if there ever was any. Uh, Rand's philosophy is an atheistic one in the sense that it doesn't rely on or regard as valid anything supernatural. Uh, but I'll say more on that point later. Um, but what's interesting, of course, is less the answer than her reasons for the answer. And I think a good place to start uh, looking at her reasons is her views about nature uh, and about the nature of nature, the nature of the world we live in. So this is nature, and that's a gorgeous shot, by the way. Uh, this is nature, or at least a small part of it. Nature is the world that we live in. It's the world we perceive with our senses. It's the world that we know directly. It's the world we live in, study, and work to understand. According to Ayn Rand, nature is all there is. To see why, let's look at what Rand has to say about the nature of nature. Um, so let's go back to that nice image we had before. So just take a look at what's there. The whole range of things. You've got 
you've got rocks and what's some maybe sandstone, some granite, you've got some rocks, you've got trees, you've got sky, clouds, snow. There are some lakes. That's Canada, by the way. It's a really pretty picture. You got the sun. And then if you can imagine above that, you've got the stars and so on. This and whatever's below the earth, this is nature. Now, what can we say about nature from a philosophical perspective? Well, one thing we can say, and one thing Rand certainly said, is that everything that exists is something specific. So if you think about everything out there in that image, everything that exists is something specific. It's something with a specific set of properties that makes it uniquely what it is and which constitutes its nature or identity, as we say. Since every entity possesses a specific set of properties, each can act only in certain delimited ways. Tomatoes, turtles, and light rays, for example, behave differently because they have different properties, different identities, and they behave as they do because of what they are. So there's a connection between their identity and their mode of action, their nature, and what they do. What we call nature is simply the world of entities acting and interacting in accordance with their identities. When we say that nature is law governed, and we talk about natural law, we mean that things can act only in accordance with their natures. They can perform or be made to perform actions uh, only, they can only be made to perform or perform actions that they have the capacity to perform. So law governed in this sense means identity governed. And this is why nature permits no miracles. So in Rand's view, this, uh, this view about uh, the identity of things and what they can do causally uh, is, is something fixed by, the, by their identity. So the, nature permits no miracles on her view. So tomatoes can't sing, water can't turn into wine, a man cannot walk unsupported on the surface of the water, and so on. Due to the nature of the entities involved, such actions are impossible to them. Um, such actions would contradict the identities of the entities involved. This connection between the, a thing's identity and its mode of action is actually the source of the intelligibility of nature and of the possibility of science. What an entity is, its identity, determines what it can do. And that's a fixed relationship. So that tells you something about Rand's view of nature and what laws govern it. What then is a god? Now, of course, there are many conceptions of what God, uh, of what god is. Um, and of course, you, uh, we often think of the, I mean, probably largely the audience here probably largely thinks of the Judeo-Christian versions of, the god, of god. But I want to take this a little more broadly. Um, I'm not sure if it encompasses everything imaginable by that's conceived of as a god, but let me just put this out here. By a god, I mean a supernatural being, a being that's supposed to transcend nature and the laws that govern it. A god in this sense is not like an advanced species of aliens more intelligent than we are. That might make them impressive or interesting, but not supernatural. We would study them just as we study anything else in nature. They would have a specific identity 
which we could work to identify, and then we would learn how, how they can act, why they behave the way they do, and so on. They would be objects in nature for study, just different. A god, however, is supposed to be a being whose actions are not bound by or limited by any specific identity, which is why god is often said to have attributes like omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, all of which express the absence of limitations, such as would be imposed by any specific identity. Supernatural, then, means something like not bound by the laws of nature, or not bound by a specific identity, and hence not subject to the causal limitations that, ent uh, that identity would entail. It's something that be, it's beyond or transcends the laws of nature. And, it, and I put this as to be roughly identity and causality. But a supernatural being in this sense, I think would necessarily be unintelligible and unknowable. And just to illustrate this a little bit, if you ask, how does such a, I mean, God, gods are supposed to have knowledge, they're supposed to know things. How does such a being acquire knowledge? Well, the only answer you can come up with is by some unknowable means, by some supernatural means, uh, by some means that has no bearing on what we understand as knowledge. How does God create something, such as creating something from nothing, or perform miracles? By what means does he effect change in the world? Again, the only answer is by some unknowable means. It's not pushes and pulls and contact and impact and like, how does he change anything? And the answer is no clue, some unknowable means. God is said to have knowledge and to see and to hear and to speak or to have feelings uh, such as anger, God is angry. Um, but these are features of conscious living organisms. So is God a living organism? Everything we know about living organisms is they are, they have physical bodies and so on. They have digestion, they reproduce. Is God like a living organism like that? And again, the only answer is not in any intelligible sense to man. This is why in her novel, Atlas Shrugged, Ayn Rand refers to God as, quote, a being whose only definition is that he is beyond man's power to conceive. She writes, To exist is to possess identity. What identity are they able to give to their superior realm? They keep telling you what it is not, but never tell you what it is. All their identifications consist of negating. God is that which no human mind can know, they say, and proceed to demand that you consider it knowledge. God is non-man. Heaven is non-earth. Perception is non-sensory. Knowledge is non-reason. Their definitions are not acts of defining, but of wiping out, end quote. That's from Atlas Shrugged. But nonetheless, many do postulate uh, the existence of a god, um, whether they can define it or not, whether they can present it as intelligible or not. And many postulate a god to explain, in particular, something they think requires an explanation and which they cannot explain. 
such as the existence of the universe, that's a common one, or nature's stunning complexity, such as the argument from design, like where does all the complexity come from? So they postulated God to provide the explanation. But I think that God is useless, God in the sense that we've been discussing it, is useless as an explanation. To offer a, a supernatural being as an explanation of a phenomenon is just to say a supernatural being did it by supernatural means, such as like, where does the universe come from? Um, or how come there's so much complexity? The answer is a supernatural being did it by supernatural means. And I think that just amounts to saying an unknowable being did it by unknowable means. But appealing to the unknowable doesn't contribute to or advance our understanding in any way. It simply blocks its pursuit. I'll say just parenthetically here also, it's often thought that it's uh, postulating a God as the explanation for some of these types of phenomenon uh, is often thought to be superior to the kinds of explanations that you would get, say, from science. Um, but I think there's a real problem with that. I mean, science has been advancing our understanding magnificently. It has a stunning track record for pushing the boundaries of knowledge uh, and advancing our understanding and explanation by certain methodologies um, that, you know, in effect, a magical being did it by magic or a supernatural being did it by supernatural means doesn't help. It doesn't really help serve as an explanation. And I think it's this allegedly supernatural character of God uh, or of many versions of God that explains why most people accept the existence of God on faith. Faith, as Rand put it, is, quote, belief unsupported by or contrary to the facts of reality and the, and the conclusions of reason. That's from her Playboy interview in March 1964. Faith amounts to believing uh, irrespective of the evidence uh, and the conclusions of reason, which I think amounts to, in effect, believing on emotional grounds rather than on intellectual grounds, rather than on the basis of, re of evidence and argument and so on. And this is why, although a person might come to see that the arguments for God's existence don't work, I mean, if that's what they come to accept, uh, they will still often continue to believe in a God. I had a student once, a university student once, um, who came to my office hours, uh, and he wanted to discuss arguments for the existence of God, and he'd bring one out, and I'd talk to him about what I thought was wrong about the argument, and we'd move on to the next one, and then to the next one. At a certain point, I just stopped and said, if you go through all the arguments that you have um, and you become convinced that there's something wrong or in, in, invalid or insufficient about them, would you stop believing in God? And, and the, the, the kid, to his credit, spent some time thinking about that, like, well, what would I really do? And in the end, he said, no, I, I wouldn't. And I told him that that's, in, that's an important thing to identify just in yourself because you have to ask yourself, is that the right way to hold ideas? Um, because, you know, although he would wheel out arguments and use arguments and employ them, um, it, in the end, it, it wasn't, his belief didn't stand or fall with the evidence or the conclusions of reason. I think that's a, it's a, that's a real sign that this is what you're doing. You're holding something on faith. Um, 
But the problem with faith, however, is that it gives you no way to reach knowledge, no way to distinguish between truth and falsehood. If I believe one thing on faith and you believe the opposite on faith, there's no way for us to adjudicate uh, which view is true, which is false. All it does is allow us to accept as true beliefs for which there's no rational justification. Which is why Ayn Rand wrote in Atlas Shrugged that an error made on your own is safer than 10 truths accepted on faith because the first leaves you the means to correct it. But the second destroys your capacity to distinguish truth from error. And then skipping down a little bit, she says, the alleged shortcut to knowledge, which is faith, is only a short circuit destroying your mind. So how do we acquire knowledge, whether it's of God or something else? Rand argues that we acquire knowledge not by faith or by appeals to authority or tradition or, or divine insight, but by reason. She has a lot to say about reason, which I won't be able to cover here. Um, but reason, in essence, is man's faculty for integrating what we perceive, for identifying the properties of things, for grasping causal connections, making logical inferences from what is already known, and integrating uh, his knowledge into a whole. This is how we acquire knowledge. So if what you're after is knowledge, and you think about whether the question is of, does God exist or Will Obamacare work or whatever the question is that you're dealing with? These are the means that you use to reach knowledge. If, you know, there's knowledge of the facts. It's the, that's your toolbox. That's the only tool in the toolbox. It's what you've got. Now, can you prove the existence of a God by reason? Um, many have thought so. Uh, many have denied it, even theologians. Uh, but Rand would say no, and I agree with her for the reasons already given. I mean, there's more to say on this issue. That if you're curious about specific arguments for God's existence, we can pursue that in the question period. I can't say I know every argument, but if you're interested. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this is only a briefest, the briefest introduction to a big subject uh, to just get some of Rand's ideas on the table. But if you want to explore more uh, on this issue about Rand's views on these subjects, I want to suggest some reading or at least a place to start. Um, and I would just say start with the Ayn Rand lexicon, this uh, uh, book uh, edited by Dr. Harry Binswanger. The contents of this is also available on Ayn Rand's, uh, on Ayn Rand's website. I wish she had a website, uh, the Ayn Rand Institute's website. Uh, it's kind of a mini encyclopedia of objectivism, and you'll find key passages from Ayn Rand's works on over 400 topics, including topics like God, religion, faith, reason, mysticism, supernaturalism, causality, and a bunch of other related topics. Uh, and then you can follow the citations and references if you want to look up the complete articles and books uh, from which those passages were taken. Um, so that brings me to the end of my brief presentation. Uh, and in a minute, I'll be joined by my colleague, Ben Bayer, who's going to join uh, in the Q&A and moderate it. Um, let me just say briefly uh, about how the Q&A works. If you're watching this uh, live on Zoom, take a look at the Zoom controls at the bottom and look for the button that says Q&A. If you click on that, it'll open it up and you can ask, ask a question there. Um, you, can all, you can post a question there and we'll add it to the queue. Um, oh, and also, uh, if you're on Facebook Live, you can post a question there and somebody will shuttle it over to me.
Uh, a few announcements uh, before we start the Q&A. Next Saturday, with so many of us uh, at Ayn RandCon in Atlanta, uh, there won't be a new webinar. Instead, we'll be broadcasting Ankar Gatte's webinar, uh, Can There Be Good Without God? So you get double duty on God. Uh, also, um, important announcement, we're moving these webinars to a new time. So this is uh, Saturday, 10 Pacific. We're going to be moving it to Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific. Uh, and that'll start on October 30. Uh, if you've already registered for the webinar series, you I don't think you'll need, no, you won't need to do anything. You won't need to re-register. You'll just simply get different alerts as to the time. Uh, and as always, uh, let us know if you have any big questions you'd like to take, like us to take up in future episodes. We're interested in hearing what those questions are. You can send them to webinars at einran.org. Um, last thing, I think this is the last thing. Before we turn to the q and I want to put up a survey question. It's just one question uh, that I'd like you to all answer. One of our goals uh, of the webinar series is to try to introduce some of Ayn Rand's thoughts to people who are not already familiar with them. So if you're, so we're curious to what kind of audience we're reaching on these. Um, even if you're a regular attendee of the series, just go ahead and fill it out. It's one question. It's actually helpful for us uh, to collect. So let me just start that poll. Um, and this, so if you're on Zoom, I'll just let this sort of sit in the background while we move on, but I'm going to launch the poll. Okay, poll launched. Water time. Okay, so let me just minimize the poll and you can poll away. Um, <clears throat> so actually, let me just turn off my PowerPoint here and we'll start the question period and We'll bring Ben in. Let's see here. Stop share. Okay. Hey, Ben. Hi, Aaron. Let's see here. So we've got a few questions that are coming in, but I, I, do, I should remind people if you uh, have questions, please be sure to plug them into the Q&A box through Zoom. We're also monitoring the comments section on the Facebook Live channel. So if someone there wants to ask a question, I'll try to I'll try to bring it into our conversation as well. Um, otherwise, I see some people still posting questions in the chat. It's probably best though if you if you plug them into the Q and A box through Zoom, which you can get to by hovering over the bottom of your screen. There's a button at the bottom. Um, so while we're waiting for some of those questions to come in, Aaron, I thought I would ask uh, a couple, at least a couple of questions of my own. Um, the first of them is. So in your presentation, you stressed uh, Rand's view that only the natural world exists and uh, defined God as a supernatural being. And so uh, I guess by definition, the two don't go together. Uh, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't find a God uh, so defined in the natural world. But what would you say to somebody who asked the question, well, who says God has to be supernatural? Why couldn't God be a uh, really special, important part of the natural universe. And sometimes this is what the kind of deistic conception of God is supposed to look like. God is the divine watchmaker, sets the, sets the universe in motion. Uh, that's uh, attempting to place him in the natural world. So what's, why not be a, a believer in that kind of God? Well, you can be... A believer, I mean, I think in you ought to be a believer in anything for which, for whose existence you can establish. Uh, so if, 
um, if you have a conception of God or what you refer to as God is just something in the natural world, um, then we agree that there's only nature and the means by which you study nature is reason, observation, logical inference, and so on. Um, if there are aspects of nature that we don't yet understand, don't yet um, haven't yet been able to conceptualize or relate to the other things that we know, then that's an era, an era, era, area, sorry, of knowledge that's worth exploring. Um, but I, the reason why, uh, so when it comes to the way Ayn Rand talks about God on a number of occasions, she says that her, she, in a letter to Isabel Patterson, uh, this is about 1945, so it's a couple of years after she published The Fountainhead, um, she said that her main objection to the notion of God is that no one can give any definite specification for what God is supposed to be. Is not this, he's not natural, is not physical, is not th this, it doesn't function by this. He, and, but there's no actual positive, there's no statement of what it actually is in any terms that are intelligible. And so if you can do that, though, if you can say, well, there is something that I'm going to call God, it's not supernatural, it's, uh, and I can actually characterize it in terms that are intelligible, uh, and you can establish uh, the existence of something like that, go for it. Um, but I think what it does is it takes the heart out of religion um, because I think a lot of the, the what's desired in having a supernatural being is precisely that such a being, by not being bound by causality, um, can, can make it such that you don't have to accept the absolutism of reality. Because God can make things happen that can't happen. God can make people rise from the dead that are dead already. God can make death not the end, and so on. So I think there's, there's a desire to have a being that can allow you to escape that, in effect. Uh, so. Well, that's very well. But I think, I think the response that somebody who had this question would give uh, would be, uh, I am giving a positive characterization of God. He's, he's the natural being the intelligent natural being who designed the present state of the universe. What would be the answer to that kind of argument? Well, there's no argument. So, I mean, so well, if, you, if, if gaps, one is postulating a being like that, um, you need an argument for that. So it's, you could, you could say, well, but again, design, designing the universe, this means bringing existence into existence. I mean, Rand's view is there's, there is no such thing. Existence is an absolute. It, it's eternal. Uh, there is no such thing as existence coming into existence. Where would it come from? Out of what? And in that sense, you need something that stands outside of, of the universe, outside, beyond being, or something that nonetheless is, and then brings in uh, the universe. Uh, she thinks that doesn't make any sense. Well, we are getting a number of questions about arguments that people could give uh, for the existence of of a god and several people actually are asking about aquinas's five proofs uh ty asked about five the, the five proofs that uh, aquinas gives edmund asked about them yeah and uh emily asked what are and william also asked about uh, the five ways emily asked what are some of the arguments that people give for the existence of god Okay. So maybe you could pick uh, one or two of Aquinas's. I mean, I think one of Aquinas's, the fifth, is the what they call the the teleological argument, and it's it's the one that's closest to the argument from design, uh, which says nature 
uh, exhibits a kind of uh, functional uh, goal directedness and uh, goals presuppose someone who in effect sets the goals. So the argument for the kind of natural design, natural theology being would, would be something like Aquinas' fifth way. But you could comment on that and maybe some of the others of Aquinas if you, if you want. Yeah, that wasn't the one I was going to comment on, but I think there are other explanations for why natural organisms pursue goals. Uh, and the whole perspective on um, life and evolutionary development and stuff is, is aimed at trying to answer questions about why the living organisms pursue the goals that they do. Um, a number of things to say about um, Aquinas' five ways. So these are five ways in which you can establish by reason uh, the existence of God. It, it, it appear in the uh, Summa Theologica. Um, and some of them are cosmological. In other words, they're about um, a cause of the universe. Uh, and there are many variations of these. Um, one is um, whatever exists has a cause. The universe exists, so the universe has to have a cause. That cause is God. Well, there's a, just to take that one, I mean, that's the simplest one. Um, a number of things. One, Rand's view is that the universe doesn't have a cause. The universe, in her view, is it's everything that exists. It's the sum total of existence. And that there's nothing outside of that total to serve as a cause. If it, if it, something, for something to be a cause, it has to already exist. In other words, it has to be part of the universe. Um, um, and, you know, so there is no such thing as a cause of the existence. And none, and also, if you postulate God as the cause of existence, I mean, the obvious answer, and I mean, there are ways of trying to deal with this, but, well, what caused God then? God exists. So God has to have a cause, but then they say, well, no, God doesn't have a cause. Okay, well, if you're already willing to accept that something can exist without having a cause, then the argument falls apart. Um, then some people will then change the argument and they'll say, well, um, well, there are two ways in which something might have a cause or an explanation for its existence. Some things are contingent. Um, you know, they come to be, they pass in the pass away, they don't have to exist, they don't exist by necessity. And some things do exist by necessity. And so they try to say that, well, God exists by necessity. Um, he's the cause of the universe, the universe didn't have to exist. Again, all of this postulates a cause of uh, existence. And I think that there is nothing outside of existence to serve as a cause. Um, I mean, there's all sorts of things you could say about this. Well, even if the argument were valid, that you know, whatever has a cause, there's a whatever exists has a cause, the universe exists, there's some sort of cause, that's God. What do you mean that's God? I mean, you have what you have is a cause of existence. You don't have a God, a personal savior, um, somebody that got mad because somebody ate an apple. The whole story, the relation, the personal, it's just an abstract cause. It also wouldn't say whether the cause still existed. It could, it could have been used up in the process. I mean, if we, I'm just fantasizing here, but it's uh, other arguments. Um, I mean, the argument for design, and I just noticed in the chat, I don't mean to jump into the moderating, but I noticed in the chat, somebody asked what I thought some of the strongest arguments for uh, the existence of God. I don't know about strong, but I say from some kind of a persuasive power, I think the argument from design 
uh, and this is the idea. I mean, this is kind of the the watchmaker argument. If you've ever heard this, um, and it goes by analogy. So I think it's true that nature's complexity is absolutely stunning, uh, mind-boggling. Uh, now I'm not a, not a scientist, so I understand much less of it than they do. But it's I think it's really stunning, and particularly um, living organisms and the the complexity of the way in which they're arranged to serve various kind of life-serving functions in an integrated way, it's, it's astonishing. Now, the argument in this case for God goes, well, they're kind of like little uh, integrated mechanisms, clockwork in a way, and it's, it's, it's as if they're craft products. It, this is the kind of uh, um, organization and structure and fittedness toward ends that you would expect in a, in, a, in a crafted object. So they're analogous to craft products, like if I make a little robot or something. Um, and so we know that craft products uh, and computers and complex things like that have an intelligent designer as their source. And by analogy, given the similarity between, let's say, living organisms or the mechanism of the eye and so on, to crafted products, we can infer that they must have a similar cause as well, a similar intelligent designer. Um, and so that gives a kind of plausibility, I think, to, yeah, how could this all come about? Um, there are a number of issues with this argument. I mean, we could go on for this one, but it's one is um, there are a lot of dissimilarities between the two as well. We know what makes watches, for example, or computers. You can actually go watch one build. You can watch the craftsman put it together, design the microchips, install everything, program it, set it up. So we actually already know that. Um, we don't see any uh, craftsman observing the things of nature. So there's a question, does it have a craftsman or is, I mean, are, are they, they're, they're analogous, they're not the same. So the question is, how, why are they fitted in the way they do? How, how, what explains their complexity? And, but that, I regard that as a question of science. It's a subject of inquiry. That's interesting. Um, um, yeah, that's all I'll say on that one. Um, but go ahead. So there's, uh, I think, the, the first cause argument that you were discussing uh, is the kind of argument that I think the philosophers these days call the Kalam cosmological argument. Uh, someone in the chat mentioned that uh, William Lane Craig makes a big deal about that. So you've, you've I think, addressed uh, Brian's question. But as far as I understand it, the kind of first cause that Thomas that Aquinas was talking about, it's the same kind that Aristotle was talking about, which wasn't a first cause sort of in order of sequence of time but a underlying sustaining cause. And that's uh, related to a question that um, uh, someone else was asking in the chat uh, about, well, and it's not quite the same thing, but you know, why not say that God is the universe, uh, kind of pantheism. So two questions there really. One, what if God is a sustaining cause or what if he just is the whole universe? Two things, so I wanna address the Kalam cosmological argument, and this came up in a uh, medieval period in the Arabic world. Um, I don't remember exactly which one came up with this, uh, which philosopher came up with this, but um, this is 
Okay, so it's it's a fair enough criticism to say whatever whatever exists has a cause. God, uh, the universe exists, so the universe has a cause, and that's fair enough because you can attack that and say, yeah. So does that cause? Does the cause of the universe have a cause? And then you have an infinite regress. So the Kalam argument is meant to address that and stop the regress by saying two things. One, by putting the first premise in a different way, whatever has a beginning to its existence has a cause of its existence. Because then they can say, well, some things don't have a beginning to their existence. Like God, he's eternal. He's always around. So you don't need to fish around for a cause for his existence. So whatever begins to um whatever has a beginning to its existence has a cause. The universe has a beginning to its existence. So it has a cause. Uh, that cause is God. And then God stops the regress because God doesn't have a beginning to its existence. He just always lives. Um, but I don't think it makes sense to say that the universe has a beginning to its existence. Um, what Craig, um, what Craig depends on, uh, relies on in that argument uh, is the notion that uh I mean, he has some complexities, but it's about uh, there's something like a Big Bang where the universe started. And I don't think that's the right way to interpret. I mean, I'm not a physicist, but from a philosophic perspective, that's the right way to interpret the argument about the Big Bang, that there's nothing. And then there's something. Um, that I don't think that makes any sense at all. Uh, now, there could be a sense in which... Um, there was an, I mean, I don't know enough about this, but there, that there was an event in time at, at such a time where things were densely compa uh, compacted uh, and then it began expanding suddenly or whatever. But that's not, that's not the universe coming into existence. That would be a matter of matter rearranging forms and other things taking shape. Uh, yeah, but. And, oh, and then why can't the universe be, well. Um, Sustaining cause or the whole universe itself. Uh, I'd have to refresh myself on the sustaining cause um, argument. Um, the idea is it doesn't need an outside cause to bring it into existence. It exists in parallel with the universe, but without God as the ongoing sustaining cause, it would sort of run out uh, or cease to exist. Um, uh, I'd have to, again, refresh myself. I know that the basic structure, but what is the argument that the that the universe requires a sustaining cause? I mean, basically, it says that um, uh, existence can run out. But what's the argument for that? Um, so that's all I have to say on that, because I have to look more into that one. Yeah, I think they would bring up a kind of regress argument about explanations. Um, but this relates to the, uh, the point that you were touching on earlier about how if for any kind of regress argument where you think you eventually need to posit some kind of first cause or first source of explanation or whatever you whatever you like, uh, if you don't get to ask the question, well, what caused that? Uh, you said the argument falls apart, but I think the way to think about this is uh, the question is, okay, we all are agreed that there has to be something that is basic. The question is, why does it have to be something with the characteristics that someone that people usually assign uh, to a god? Why are you assuming that the basic or unexplained entity is a conscious or intelligent being? Why can't it be the basic nature of matter? And so there's this this underlying kind of worldview, uh, underlying philosophical worldview that assumes that intelligence and consciousness 
are in some in some way more real than than the natural world that we see around us and have to come first and there's a big question of why someone would assume that which which we could go yeah. into a much longer conversation about yeah and that and that's if, people are not comfortable often if you say the the physical world and whatever its ultimate components are that how could that be basic how could that just exist that you know for many people that's just un what's the word unconvincing and there's something they're not comfortable with but a mind uh a consciousness yeah now that i can imagine as a beginning and there's a question of what is underlying that ayn rand calls that the view called the primacy of consciousness the idea that the that your view is that consciousness is what has metaphysical authority consciousness can make reality snap into line consciousness can bring reality into existence but the idea that existence is a primary that it's just there and consciousness is one aspect of some things within the universe like us um is somewhere unsatisfying and you know i know in uh uh, in no, I'm going to get derailed talking about Plato's uh, uh, laws. So I think that before <laughs> we go into Plato's laws, we should we should change the subject a little bit because we've been talking yeah, mostly the, about kind of arguments for the existence of God, but there's a lot of questions that have come in also uh, more about how to think about the the reason versus faith question, and yeah. this is uh, in many ways I think the. The, the way that more people are likely to deal with this issue. And so uh, one person, Steve, asked, uh, what do you think about Pascal's wager as an argument for believing in God? Okay, so just briefly, Pascal's wager uh, is something like this. Uh, it's better, if you're playing the odds, it's better to believe that a God exists than to deny that belief. Um, because if a God exists, if a God does turn out to exist, and what the God is holding out to you is an, in, an infinity of bliss with the Creator, if you believe, and eternal torment for those who don't believe. Well, the stakes are so high that it's better to adopt the belief um, because the downside in the end, well, what if it turns out you're wrong, right? What if you, you believe that you go you through your life believing there's a God and then turns out that's it. You're dead. He says, well, there's no big loss. Okay, maybe there's a little, little bit uh, of loss. Um, but it's so that the good to be gained by belief and the evil to be avoided is so magnificent, so monumentous that it makes more sense to believe in God than to not. A couple things about this. Um, the major thing is um, I mean, Pascal is a fideist. I mean, he thinks you cannot establish the existence of God by reason um, and that you, it's all about faith. Um, and so his, so first thing to say is you can't, this is not about belief. You can't force yourself to believe that something is true because you think it would be practical for someone else to think that you thought it was true. Um, so if you think, I don't really think there's a God, but I'm going to believe that there is, even though I don't think there is, because God might punish me if I don't believe it. It's like you can't make yourself believe on those kind of grounds. Uh, second, if you believe in the kind of God that Pascal does, God would know exactly what you're doing and that you're just playing a practical game, uh, but you're not really a believer. So really all he's asking you to do is... Um, 
act and live as if you were a Christian. Um, so God won't send you to hell and, or, you know, so God can elevate you to heaven or whatever. Uh, and I think there is actually a downside. I don't think it's right to say there's no downside to, um, um, adopting the kind of, uh, deep Catholic lifestyle that, uh, Pascal suggests, um, but we can move on from that one, I think. Well, maybe I would, I'd, I'd be curious to hear more about what you, what you would say about what's the bigger downside. Well, a couple things. I'll say two things to that one. I'll sort of unleash a little bit, but uh, one is um, he's asking you to devote your life to God. And I think, and to, and to, you know, this a whole, you just go to confession, go to church, follow the Christian uh, rules and so on. Um, I don't think that's good for your life. Um, I don't think subordination to another authority and obedience to its rules or dictates is the way in which to think about how to live one's life, how to choose one's goals, how to reach happiness. And I think it really it pushes you in a different kind of direction. Um, it's about subordinating yourself uh, and your interest to something supernatural, which you don't even know exists, but you're going to try to pretend as if you know it exists because uh, you think somebody might hurt you. The second thing I want to say is, um, I regard it as evil, a God who would allegedly create people with the capacity to think, to reason, to sort out connections. And then if they reach the conclusion, there's not enough evidence, I don't really think that this being exists, to torture them forever. I think that's a, I mean, my view, sorry, is this is a monstrous God, like morally monstrous. Now, of course, the, 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 the person can say, well, God is the source of morality. He creates what's good. Whatever he says is good. Um, but there's another argument there. I don't think that's true. Um, Someone in the chat says, Pascal's wager doesn't give you any advice about how to determine what to do. He just assumes you should be Catholic or something, which I think is related to what you're saying, because there's a question of, well, which God are you supposed to believe in? Uh, and why, how do you uh, already know that the one that is up for belief is one who's going to punish you if you don't believe in him? What about the God out there who, who thinks you should be rational and only believe in things on the basis of your reason that he gave you? Wouldn't he want you to be an atheist? And which God are you supposed to place your bets on? And when you do that, aren't you splitting your odds between yeah. the one and the other? So the Christian so, God might be happy if I spend my life practicing whatever Vishnu wants me to practice uh, and it might get in trouble. So uh, we, again, we got so many questions came in. I've had to really cut them down to size, but... Um, Here's another question that I think relates to the reason faith issue. Um, Jose, I think is how you say his name, asks, let us say someone claims to be a God or God, uh, little case, lowercase g, uppercase g. He performs miracles, shows you a glimpse of heaven, brings back your grandpa from the dead, etc. How would you know that the person claiming to be a God or uppercase God is actually indeed a God slash God and not some other type of spiritual being pretending to be a God, for instance, Satan. Um, there's a number of assumptions packed into that question, but I think the general issue is, you know, what if you see a miracle uh, where, where something really uh, amazing appears to you? Uh, why wouldn't this be immediate kind of rational evidence uh, that you could then have to believe in this supernatural being or something pretty special, at least that's part of the universe? Well, then your context of knowledge would be radically different. 
but this isn't our context of knowledge. That's the thing is like, you can imagine, you can imagine anything you like and say, what would you believe if that was the case? What would you believe if Ben turned into a tomato uh, and started advocating a Kantian uh, philosophy? So, well, I mean, well, uh, I mean, but if you take it, the, the point seriously, if somebody uh, performed something utterly miraculous that to the best of your knowledge, this is actually impossible, took you to some other dimension, gave you some uh, way of having some sort of special insight that you've never had before and some whole new world that you never knew was that you'd be in a different world. You'd have a completely different set of uh, data to work with. You'd, you'd, you'd ask yourself what is going on. And if you, if your, if your means is reason, you have to try you would have to try to integrate that. What is going on? What is this that I'm observing? Uh, but you'd never really be able to get out of the fact that reason would be your means of trying to figure out, to sort out what's there. But again, it, to some, it, I mean, it, it's, it's a fantasy, it's a fantastical sort of question. It's imagine a situation that doesn't exist, and what would you think? Well, you'd, imagine, you'd think something different. Of course, there are people who claim that this sort of thing has happened to them. Yeah, and but so, so that, then the question yeah. is what to make of that. And um, well, I would take the case more more realistically in the sense that um, if someone did something that looked like uh, it wasn't possible. So you're you're at the hospital and your grandfather passes away on the, the medical the hospital bed. Um, and he expires and the doctors say he's brain dead or he's, he's gone. And a few minutes later, someone comes in and puts their hands over him and mutters some incantation uh, and the guy wakes up again. <laughs> First, we're like, what the hell, right? This, this can't happen. This is not, but the question then is what is going on? So what is happening? What, and, and it would be an issue of investigation. What did, was there a causal connection between the person that came in and the, the person coming back? Has this kind of thing ever happened before? Uh, what do the doctors think about this? I mean, they, it would be, you, it, you wouldn't jump to, it's God, it's a supernatural. I don't think, you know, a whole, co the context in which we live with, uh, where is, you wouldn't, I don't think you would rationally think, oh, this is a, this is a miracle. I mean, you might, might jump to your mind, but it's, um, it's so what is the explanation for this? Because there are so many things, and I think this is the, one of the reasons for um, people believing in God, at least going back, way back, is there are so many things that we don't understand for why they happen uh, that we postulate or, or hypothesize unseen causes. Um, and, you know, there, there are things that are unexplained um, and that need investigation. But I don't think, you, yeah, go ahead. I think that David Hume had uh, one of the best answers to this kind of argument uh, back in the 18th century. And uh, he said, uh, well, first of all, if what you're talking, there's a question of how do you define a miracle? If a miracle is just a kind of out of the ordinary experience. Well, these things happen all the time. Uh, people see strange things and then they ask questions. Well, why did this happen? Let's find out. Uh, but if a miracle is supposed to be something that violates the laws of nature, uh, and indeed, it's precisely the assumption that it does violate the laws of nature, in other words, all the experience we've ever had before, that leads people to think there's something that requires a new explanation that's supernatural here. If that's what you mean, uh, well, then you have to ask yourself, if 
if we're assuming that this is really something contrary to all of our experience, and somebody tells us that they've seen a miracle, we have to ask, well, why do we ever trust what anybody tells us? It's only because of our experience of people having testified reliably in the past. So we're going to have to throw out our past experience one way or the other. Uh, we're going to have to either throw out all the experience that was the basis for that law of nature, or we're going to have to throw out our experience of relying on people. And the question is now, which is more likely that all of the experience we have that went into the formulation of our law of the laws of nature is without a basis or that people actually aren't perfectly reliable in their reporting about facts, which is more reliable, which is more likely that this person really saw something that violates the laws of nature or that they got it wrong or that they're lying or that they're, uh, that maybe they're crazy. Or and the same, yeah. And the same thing goes if you experience your own uh, little miracle, what's more likely that all of the experience you have in the past that is behind your understanding of nature is completely wrong or that you're seeing things. And, and yeah. Hume's answer is always, that's much more likely that you're, that you're yeah. making a mistake or that you're seeing and things. A you're couple more things to say there. One is, um, uh, this is, I mean, this is, I think, uh, the sensible way of looking at uh, the reports that come in sacred texts, you know, about, uh, you know, Jesus walking on water and things like that, where you get reported miracles from a couple thousand year old text that whose provenance that we don't really know very well and what happened to it. And so it's, you can't, you have no way of assessing, I think the reliability of these kinds of things. And also you have to treat texts that report supernatural events as different. If I read in uh, Cicero that, uh, you know, a three headed calf sung a tune, you know, you wouldn't, you know, or turned into Hegel, <laughs> you wouldn't uh you wouldn't go oh yeah cicero is normally pretty reliable he's like hold on because you can't say well the, oh, oh then that must be true because then you have to think well well how does that relate to everything else i know uh in the world um yeah okay so we're getting close to the end of our time we got six minutes to go um Aaron, did you have any other recommendations that you wanted to make for other, uh, there are people asking questions about what's a good book, what's a good article I can read to follow up on these kinds of questions. Yeah. Um, if you don't, I can ask maybe one more question from the queue. Yeah, let me get the one question, or sorry, one recommendation. And this is a book not, that's not by an objectivist, uh, or not by someone who's uh, an advocate of Ayn Rand's philosophy, but somebody who is heavily influenced by uh, Ayn Rand in the writing of the book, and that is uh, George H. Smith's uh, Atheism, The Case Against God. Um, I used to use that in teaching. I would teach that side by side with William Lane Craig's book. Uh, William Lane Craig is a very pro prominent Protestant apologist, in other words, a defender of Christian faith. Uh, and he had a book called On Guard, I think it was the title. It was a uh, kind of defending the faith or whatever. I would teach on guard side by side with the Smith book. And it's interesting because both of them, it, it's argument heavy in both. Um, uh, but that, that's an interesting for looking at both sides of the issue and what kind of case can be made. Um, so you're not looking at straw men or anything. So let me end with one question. I think you could probably answer pretty quickly. And this is one that came in from Vic. Vic asks, do you have some tips on how to explain why you don't believe in God without coming across as rude? Uh, short answers for light conversations, the way he puts it, he or she, I'm not sure. Vic. Uh, 
it doesn't make sense to me. So when I was 11, that's when I dropped the idea of God. I was, uh, grew up in a religious home and uh, a very, I think, uh, loving and supportive home. Uh, nobody dropped me on my head. Everyone that we went to church with was really nice. Um, I, they didn't cram it down my throat or anything, but they, my parents were religious. Um, and we went to church and stuff. But it, I was at about the age of 11, I remember was sixth grade, it was, I'd been thinking about this. And it's like, it just doesn't make sense to me. Uh, and then later when I was, I don't know, 17, I started to, you know, become older, more equipped to be able to start think more seriously about these kind of issues. And I revisited the issue because I thought, look, this is a big deal. Uh, and in the end, that's really what it amounted to. I didn't have any arguments. It's just that this doesn't, to my mind, to my thinking, to my reasoning, this doesn't make sense. Like, it doesn't make any sense. And so it's one thing that says, you can say that it doesn't make sense to you. It's not like you're a fool if you believe this sort of stuff or you, you don't have to be combative in any way. It's just to, is that you retain sovereignty over your own judgment about what you accept uh, and the standards that you would use to think about like what's worth believing, what has rational warrant uh, and to retain sovereignty over that is to retain a certain kind of intellectual independence. Uh, and I think that's important and it's important to, in effect, to, to model. Other people should know that it's okay to stand on your own mind. Um, and it's not, you know, you're angry at God or something like that. It's just that this stuff doesn't make sense to me. Um, it's, and one doesn't have to be smug about it. If that's, I mean, if that's helpful. Yeah, I mean, I think I would, uh, I would start myself by saying, uh, because I don't have any evidence for it. But then if I thought the, uh, we had enough time, I would, I would turn the tables uh, and put the onus on the other person and just ask them, well, why do you believe in God? And that can lead to, I think, an interesting conversation because you, know, you might find out that, uh, well, they, something like, uh, I need a source of morality. Uh, that's why they believe in God. And, and then you can have a conversation about, well, do you need to have God for morality? Are there other ways to uh, you know, find facts that give us the basis for moral guidance, which is, of course, the topic that uh, Ankar's uh, webinar is going to be about that we're going to be replaying next week, which, of course, you can't always point someone to in a conversation, but you can, you can still have a conversation about that issue. Uh, or they might give another reason, and, and you can have a conversation about that and you know, learn more about uh, what each of you uh, thinks on important issues in life. Yeah, I think, and I think it's possible yeah, to do that in non-confrontational ways. And I think, sure. I think it's also important. So objectivism is a radical philosophy. I mean, uh, so Ben and I are objectivists. We talk to people, we give conference talks, we have to, in to interact and engage with people and we enjoy doing it. Um, but when you're offering something radical, something that's challenging, something that's difficult, I think what you have to do, and not just for this kind of thing, but you have to take, I think you have to take seriously the fact that people have reasons for thinking as they do, uh, and they may be different from your own, and you may think that ultimately they don't make sense, or they're ultimately they're not valid, or they don't, or whatever, but um, I think if you take more seriously the fact that people have reasons why they believe what they do and in engaging with the reasons why uh, they hold what they hold. And similarly with yourself, if someone else is like, oh, you're an atheist. Oh, we, we know about you. It's like, no, they don't know anything. It's, it's what, but if you wanted to engage with the person, why do you think as you do? Like you hold a belief that's different that I think there's a God and this guy doesn't. It's like, well, what, what's behind that? What's underneath it? 
Uh, and because that's really what you have to talk about. It's not, it shouldn't be tribal as they're on camp atheism and I'm on camp God and we kind of go back and forth and it's about positions. It's, it's less about the positions. It's about the methodology that you use to think and how you reach conclusions about your intellectual independence, about whether you have cogent arguments for, for what you think or whether you just populate your mind with what you feel like believing on either side. So it's, it's engaged more with the reasons and the evidence and the arguments. Um, that's, I think, the way to communicate rather than clashing over the conclusion. Okay, Aaron, we, we're, we're, we're at time, so you should uh, yeah, give I us should your wrap-up pitch. Wrap-up. Uh, wrap-up is basically um, uh, next week, uh, join us for uh, Ankar Gatte's uh, uh, Can There Be Morality Without God? I think is that the title. Let me, let me do my screen share. Can here. I be good without God? Yeah, can I be good without God? I can be good. So, um, let me just pull this up. Sorry. Okay, yeah, so I, I wanted to move the slide forward here. Yeah, here we go. Uh, so, it's, uh, yeah, Can There Be Good Without God? That's a rebroadcast of Ankar Gatte's uh, uh, earlier webinar because we're going to be, most of us are going to be out at a conference. Um, also, just a reminder that um, we're going to be changing the broadcasting time for the webinar series starting on October 30. We're going to be uh, broadcasting on Wednesdays at 11 PT uh, Pacific. And if you have any big questions you'd like us to take up in future webinars, uh, email us at webinars at ironman.org. So zip zip. Thanks for everyone for coming. Thanks Ben for moderating and uh, thanks for all your questions, everyone. So that's, that's it for today. Thanks Aaron. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.